Hey, everybody. Uh, just wanted to let you know, we had some technical difficulties on the first session of Love 101 in our recording. So I'm re-recording this because we want to make sure that people who weren't able to be there are able to hear it and people who want to hear it again to catch whatever they missed. We want to make sure that's there for you. So uh, if it sounds like nobody else is in the room besides me and, and James, then that's exactly what's going on. So, uh, But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. We're starting the study here. Uh, this is going to be primarily a practical study, not a not heavy theology, but we do we do want to get a theological basis. We do want a biblical basis for what we're talking about. And, and the whole idea here is that our relationships, uh, whether we're married or unmarried, our, our friendships, our uh, our relationships with immediate family, our relationships with coworkers, the most important relationships in our lives, that's what determines our happiness. That's really what life is made of. We may make money, we may uh, achieve success in a certain area, we may have good health, bad health, all those things are fine, all those things are important, but none of that adds up to as much as our relationships do. And when it comes to relationships, nothing matters more than love. Love is the key to healthy relationships. So this whole study is about how to love others, uh, like Jesus told, taught us to, to, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's why we're starting with 1 Corinthians 13. This week and next week, we're going to look at some biblical basis for what we're talking about, and then we'll get into the more practical stuff. And I know when we talk about 1 Corinthians 13, you immediately think of marriage. I, I think most of us who've, who are married, we had this read at our wedding I know that after my wife and I got married, one of our wedding gifts was 1 Corinthians 13 in calligraphy in a frame, and we hung it up on our wall. Um, some of you have probably even read this at a wedding. You were the reader. So the, the ironic thing is when you actually read 1 Corinthians 13 in its original context, Paul wasn't talking about romantic love. And that's okay because it's not romantic love that your relationships need. Even if you're married, romantic love isn't the most important thing you can have in your relationship with your spouse. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing, but that's not the best thing or the main thing. So just to give you some context, when you read 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, and, and remember, this is a letter to a specific group of people 2,000 years ago. That group of people was messy. They were a messed up church. Um, they, they had a lot going for them. There were a lot of very gifted people in the church, but that was part of the problem too. The gifted people in the church thought that they were better than the rest, that they were better than the riffraff in the congregation. Oh, I can prophesy. I have miracle working power. I have the ability to speak in a tongue that I have in a language that I didn't learn. So that makes me a more important Christian and I'm worthy of more respect. And so there was a division within the body of Christ. And Paul was writing this letter to bring them back together and tell them this is what it's like to really love one another. So when you read chapter 12, the one right before for 13, I know that's an obvious statement, but when you read chapter 12, it's talking about how the church is a body, how every member of an individual church is important, just like every member of your body is important. And you wouldn't want to have to decide between your elbow and your ear, between your, your right eye and your left foot. You would say, well, both of them are important. In the same way, every person in a local congregation is important to God and is important to us in the way we function. 
and we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, favor some over the other. And, and so Paul writes this beautiful chapter, chapter 12, about how uh, the church is a body and all the parts are important. And then he says at the end of chapter 12, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And, and by the way, before I read chapter 13, let me just say, we're very sentimental about 1 Corinthians 13. It's such beautiful language. Like I said, we put it up uh, in a, behind a frame on our walls. The Corinthians who first heard this would not have been sentimental about it. They would have been offended by it. I guarantee none of the Corinthians said, hey, I want a copy of that so I can hang it on my wall. They, they, would, they had their feelings hurt by what Paul says. And, and, and I'll show you why, because we're going to talk first about how this spoke to the Corinthian church, and then I want to talk about seven ways this speaks to us today and tells us what love really is in our lives. So chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, begins this way. If I speak... In the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, when I said they would, they would have found this uh, this whole chapter offensive, this is the main part they would have been offended by because he's describing the Corinthians in those three verses. He's describing them. They were people who said, hey, I speak in the tongues of men and angels. I can prophesy. I can have a faith that moves mountains. I can do all these wonderful things. And Paul says, yeah, you do all this great stuff, but you don't do it out of a motive of love, so you're nothing. And to give you some sense of the impact, imagine... Imagine if he wrote it to us today and he said, hey, if you speak, if you preach sermons that convert thousands to Christ, if you build a church that draws in an entire city, you're still nothing. If you donate money that sends kids to school or, or funds research that ends diseases, you're still nothing. If you personally sacrifice yourself to save the lives of others, you're still nothing. And we hear that and, and then our response is, like the Corinthians. Well, how can that be? What more does God want? And to that, there's this great story that Tim Keller tells about this passage. It talks about uh, a farmer in, in an ancient kingdom long, long ago who, brought this, who, who grew this fantastic carrot, the biggest carrot he'd ever seen. And as soon as he pulled it up out of the, out of the ground, he said, I have to give this to the king. And he goes to the palace and he waits all day and finally he's granted an audience with the king and he, he kneels before the king and he pulls out this carrot and he lays it before the king and he says, oh king, you are so benevolent to us and, and, and I'm so thankful for your provision for us. I just want to give you this carrot. It's the biggest carrot I've ever seen in my life and I want to give it to you as a gift in honor of your wisdom and your love. And the king can tell this man is sincere in, in what he's doing and so he says, that's wonderful. So here's what I'm going to do for you. You're obviously a talented farmer, and I need talented farmers on my land. So why don't you and your family move from your place onto my own property, and you'll farm my land for me. And the farmer's overjoyed. It's, it's like 20 times the size of his farm and much more fertile. It's a tremendous gift. Now, there's a nobleman standing there in the king's court that day, and he sees what happens, and he thinks, wow, if that's what you get for a carrot... So the next day he comes 
to the king's court, in the court of the king, and he has this beautiful white stallion. He says, oh, king, this is the finest horse in all the land. I've bred it myself in my own stables, and I'm giving it to you today as a gift in honor of your benevolence and your wisdom. And the king knows this nobleman. He knows how this guy's heart and his mind work. And so he says, you can keep your stupid horse. And the nobleman is deeply offended. He says, how can you say that? This is the finest horse in all the land. That farmer brought you that ridiculous carrot yesterday and you gave him an entire piece of property and I get nothing for this horse? And the king says, the difference is that farmer gave me his carrot. You gave yourself that horse. And that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Yes, you do these incredible things. Yes, you're incredibly gifted and you do these amazing things ostensibly for God, but you're really doing them for yourself. There's no love in it. doesn't matter how much you do for God if you're really doing it for yourself. If there's no love in it, then you aren't really spiritually mature. He goes on in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And so what he's doing in those verses, if if the first three verses were describing the Corinthians, these next four verses are describing what the Corinthians aren't. Have you ever been in a church or an office or a classroom, or a friend group where there was tension and conflict, where people just really didn't like each other, didn't get along with each other, and, and that's a terrible place to be. It's a depressing place to be. And it, it happens because the kinds of things Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, aren't happening. And that was true in the Corinthian church. The gifted members of the church weren't patient with the less gifted They were boastful. They did keep a record of wrongs. They were selfish. They weren't kind. And then he goes on in verse 8. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So he's saying all these things you're so proud of, they aren't even permanent. Your spectacular ministry gifts, they won't last forever. But he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So what he's doing there is he's he's describing them as toddlers. He's describing them as babies. He's saying, you haven't grown out of your childishness. I have, but you haven't. Because think about it. What what are, what are children obsessed with? They're, they're obsessed with spectacular things, shiny things, things that distract them. They can't really pay attention to things that take more effort. And that's what he's saying about the Corinthians. He goes on and says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul says love triumphs overall. Love is the most important virtue because that's what the Holy Spirit of God is trying to to develop in us. He wants the Corinthians to see, even though we're so proud of our gift, our giftedness and our resources, we're still basically infants in the faith. 
He wants them to admit they need to grow in love. Well, how about us? So so I want to give you seven ways we can apply this truth to all of our relationships. Number one, the way love is defined here. Think about what, what Paul is defining love as here. Love has nothing to do with what you can do for me. It's all about me wanting what's best for you. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but the way our culture defines love is all about what you do for me, how you make me feel, how, how you bless my life and make me happy. But real love has everything to do not with what you do for me, but what I do for you. And that means that if it's real love, I'm willing to sacrifice to serve you, and I never ask you to sacrifice to serve me. That means I'm even willing to lose you if it would be better for me. If, if the, the call of God is for you to go somewhere else, if, if there's someone else who you need to be with other than me, I don't begrudge you that because I love you. I want what's best for you. Second truth, none of us is capable of doing this. None of us is capable of loving like that. Notice, notice in verses four through eight, when I, when I read it earlier, it doesn't say you should be patient, you should be kind, you should not envy, you should not boast. It, instead, it says love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. So this isn't a checklist to try to make us try harder. This isn't uh, Paul saying you ought to be able to do this. He's admitting we can't do this on our own. But number three, there was one who loved in this way. There was one person who fit the criteria of 1 Corinthians 13 perfectly. And you know who that was, right? I mean, I'm, I'm talking into a microphone, standing in a church, reading from the Bible. I think you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus, right? He was the one and the only one who loved this way perfectly. And I know, I know that we can give examples of what we think of as perfect love. The, the best example I know of is of a, a mother of a newborn, a mother of an infant, because she's, she's taking care of that child and getting nothing in return. This child keeps her awake at night. This child has constant demands, never says thank you, never gives her anything back. And she constantly gives and gives and gives. I watched my wife do that. And yet even that is not perfect love because even there, that mother knows someday, someday there's going to be a return on this investment. Someday all this love I've poured into this child, I'm going to get some back because someday this child's going to make me crafts in Sunday school. This child is going to write me little notes uh, and bring them home from school for me. This child is going to be a teenager, and, and we're going to go out and drink coffee together, or maybe go to the movies together. Someday this child's going to grow up and bear me grandchildren. And, and yet Jesus' love is perfect, because he did all of this expecting nothing in return, because there's really nothing we have to offer him. So number four Number four, just like the Corinthians, we're toddlers when it comes to love. We're infants. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, to be a a member of the kingdom of God is to be born again. To become a Christian is to start life all over again. And for a lot of us, we've never really gotten out of our diapers in our Christian faith. Some things have changed. We started going to church. Maybe we stopped using certain bad words. Maybe we dropped a few vices. Maybe we picked up a few good habits. But when it comes to what really matters, what really matters is love, we're still infants. We're still selfish. We still care only about what affects us. And you can protest and you can say, yeah, but, but I go to church constantly. Yeah, I read the Bible. I serve. I donate. 
Sure, and that's great, but if you haven't become more loving, you haven't really grown. You've been giving yourself that horse. So number five, the fifth point I want to emphasize is, if you want to learn to love, constantly identify the ways you're childish toward others. Constantly identify, yes, I'm childish in my relationship toward my spouse, and this is how. I'm, I'm childish in my relationship toward my parents, toward my kids, toward my roommate, toward my friends, toward my coworkers, toward my employer. And here's how. Identify those things. And if you need help, then ask that person. Ask them, how, how am I childish? How am I selfish in my dealings with you? If you have the courage, because you, you'll probably hear some things you don't want to hear. Or you can just ask yourself, what happens? What reasons are there for the times I get angry with this person or irritated with this person or disappointed with this person? Because chances are, when you get angry, irritated, or disappointed, it's because of a childish impulse within you. Let me just give you some examples. So a a young woman has her feelings hurt because she finds out that a group of her friends went out and did something fun and they didn't invite her. And she decides because they did that, she's just not going to talk to them anymore because it just hurt her too much to be treated that way. And, And I think any of us who've ever been in that position can say, yeah, I would be hurt too. But think about it this way. Isn't it selfish to be angry at your friends for having fun without you? Isn't it selfish? Isn't that saying, I don't want you to have fun unless I'm there? And yeah, you can say, but, but that was rude of them. They should have called me. Or you know, maybe they were even purposefully mean. I've seen that happen before where, where someone just decides, I'm, I'm, I'm mad at this person, so let's, let's have fun without her just to hurt her feelings. Even if that's true, if she weren't selfish, it wouldn't have hurt her. If she weren't selfish, she could shrug it off and say, well, I'm glad they had a good time. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt me in any way. In fact, I'm glad because, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, love isn't selfish. Here's another example. A man finds that he's constantly hurting his wife's feelings. And, and all he's doing is he's just joking around with her the way he jokes around with his male friends. He can't figure out why she hasn't gotten used to his sense of humor yet. And he's tired of seeing her cry, seeing her pout, having to say he's sorry. He's like, she knows my sense of humor. Why doesn't she realize that I'm just joking? And yet that's selfishness. That's an idea of, well, I don't want to adapt to my wife's emotional needs. And love is supposed to be kind. And kindness considers the feelings and the needs of someone else. That's that's a childish mentality that says, this is who I am and I refuse to change. And then a third example, let's say there's a woman who's disappointed in her teenage daughter, and and it it comes down to the fact that the mom herself, when she was that age, she was an excellent student, she was an athlete, she was involved in in a lot of campus organizations, she was very popular, had tons of friends, she was constantly busy doing things, and the daughter is the opposite. She's quiet, she's moody, she dresses like a homeless waif, she has only one or two real friends that she enjoys, and the mom looks at those friends and says, well, I don't really think those are good friends, they, they don't have any potential in the world. And the mom thinks that she's disappointed because she wants what's best for her daughter, but actually, if she, gets, if she drills down into the honest truth of it, she would say, it's because I wanted to relive my teenage years through her. I wanted, I wanted to experience all those things all over again. 
And she doesn't realize that her daughter is someone very different than her. She's not willing to accept that maybe her daughter doesn't desire a bunch of friends. Maybe her daughter isn't athletic. Maybe her daughter doesn't want to be involved in lots of uh, activities. She's someone very different. Love is patient. It's, it's willing to let someone be who they are. So think of those ways. Think of the ways that you get angry, you get irritated, you, you get disappointed because you have a childish mentality, an unloving mentality towards someone. And then number six, confess those things to the Lord. Confess them. Be specific. Don't just say, okay, Lord, I know I'm childish toward my friends. I know I'm childish toward my spouse. Get specific. Write those things down. If you have a spiritual journal, write them and name them. And if you don't have a journal, if you don't have a place where you write down the things God is saying to you when you read the Bible, when you go to church, when you pray, then you should. Start one today, but write down the things, the ways that you know you're being childish. And then finally, number seven, call on the one who loves perfectly to love perfectly through you. Have you ever, you ever been in church and you've been singing and the person sitting behind you has a fantastic voice? In my previous church, uh, the student minister was a guy who, had, who was a professionally trained opera, opera singer. And he had this fantastic voice. He could sing any style of music. And so when he sang behind me, it was fantastic. I, I felt like I was a fantastic singer because I could only hear his voice and not mine. Tim Keller, uh, for years, pastored a church in Manhattan. He had people in his church who sang for the Metropolitan Opera, people who sang on Broadway, people who sang uh, in the great halls of New York. And so there were people all around his congregation who could really sing. And he says, if you're standing in front of that person and they're singing through you, you feel like a fantastic singer. It's sort of the same thing as when you sing with the sound turned all the way up on your favorite song which is a dangerous thing if you're wearing earbuds because, well, you, you get the point. But verse 6 says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. In the Greek, that literally says, Love sings along with the truth. So picture that. That means, that means that we don't have to know how to love people. We don't have to be able to love people like Jesus does. He can love people through us. We can sing along with him. We can, we can let him take over so that it's not really us doing it. It's Christ loving through us. And all we have to do is just confess, Lord, I'm not able to love this person like I should. I need your help. Show me how. And he will. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that takes a lifetime, but that's how we grow in our ability to love others. So thanks for listening. Uh, I hope this is helpful to you. If you, if you have questions, email me, jeffberger at fbcconroe.org, um, or give me a call or just check up with me next time you're in church. Uh, have a great week, and God bless you.